Well, it's that time again. This is TechBiter Worldwide for the week of August 17th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Listener Jack Flynn had a question for me. He asked, how do you disclose all of those redirects when you track down spammers? Hey, that's a good question. In fact, it's really not something that requires a lot of know-how. It's mainly just patience. The patience to perform a series of mind-numbing steps over and over So, prepare to have your mind numbed, because I'm now going to tell you how it's done. The first step is pretty easy. You find a spam to analyze. That's not difficult. My Gmail account receives copies of all email messages I receive, even those that are filtered out before reaching my standard account. So I usually have a pretty good choice. Spam stays on the system for 30 days, then Gmail deletes those messages. So I have a running total of how much spam is trying to get to me. When I performed this test, there were 7,700 spams in the past 30 days. Now, something we have done at the server level has made a major difference. I'm down to about 4,000 spams a month instead of 7,700. Something at the server level is making a big difference. In any event, I found a message from Colonial Bank. Actually, Colonial Bank's web biz. And they had an emergency alert system message for me. Well, I've never heard of Colonial Bank, so obviously this was some sort of scam. I opened the message and found that Colonial Bank had installed some new security software, and they wanted me to update a few things. That, of course, would have been very difficult, since I didn't have an account with them, and the message gave away a lot. My name was, of course, nowhere to be found, and a series of grade school punctuation errors revealed the message to be exactly what it was. Well, I hovered my mouse over the link that was provided in the message so that I could see what the destination was. The destination was enormous. HTTP colon slash slash connect dot colonial bank dot web biz dot security challenge dot bank on net dot site minder agent dot SSOS suppress prompt dot FCC type and a big number dot real moid and a big number dot then a really huge number then dot SM auth reason dot method dot get SM agent name SM dot another big number dot five freetail dot inquiry now pay attention here dot fnhgjd dot com forward slash logon dot htm so the domain I'm going to is not Colonial Bank or WebBiz or Security Challenge or Bank on Net the domain is fnhgjd and I can tell you right away no bank would ever pick a URL like that. Well, the next step I take is always to look up the domain registration information because I'd like to know who owns the domain and where that person might be located. Centralops.net is a handy, free online service that provides a lot of information. And the registrar for this domain is, not too surprisingly, in China. It's probably safe to say that most U.S. banks never use domain registrars in China. 
So who exactly does this domain belong to? I scrolled down a bit further and found that the registration belongs to a gentleman in Saratov, which happens to be the capital of Saratovskaya Oblast, which is an administrative region in Russia. Saratov is about a thousand miles southeast of Moscow, so that puts it in central Russia. Now, this is not an area known for international finance. Okay, so now it's time to see if there are any redirects. To find out, I used Sam Spade. This is a free utility program, and if you'd like to download it, you can find a link to the Sam Spade website on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Sam Spade is kind of an old program. It's not going to be updated anymore. But it's still useful. So I handed Sam Spade the full URL and told it to identify itself as a Windows 95 computer running an old version of Internet Explorer. Now this is safe because Sam Spade will just show me the raw HTML from the site. It has no ability to run any of the nasties that might be on the site. So it's a safe way to see if there are redirects in place. Well, as it turned out, there weren't any redirects. The site will simply attempt to run an executable file right then and there. Needless to say, this is going to do something to your computer that you are not going to be happy about. So although there were no redirects here, this at least explains how you can safely examine a target of a URL. Be very careful, though. When you're hovering your mouse over the URL, or perhaps when you right-click it to get a copy of the URL, accidentally left-clicking the URL is going to take you to that poisonous link on the rogue site. Okay, so I hadn't found any redirects. I went back to the starting point, scanned the list for another possible winner, and found one, an offer for free scholarships. The URL involved is long and ugly, but that's not necessarily definitive. A legitimate website can use very long URLs. So, once again, I copied the link to the Windows clipboard. Central Ops told me that the domain in question is registered to someone in Santee, California. I asked Google Maps to show me the location, and as it turned out, this is an area with a street-level view. From the satellite photo, it appeared to be a shopping center, And the street-level view confirmed that. It's a small shopping center with a Vons supermarket. I've been in California, so I know about Vons. The address provided is probably nothing more than a mailbox. So, at this point, I know a little bit more about the spammer. It's time to take a look at the website. Sam Spade showed me the page. And if you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll notice that the page consists of one extremely long Line. This makes it really hard for somebody to see the code, and it's a technique that spammers often use to hide their work. Getting around that was relatively easy. I copied all of the text from Sam Spade, pasted it into a text editor, UltraEdit, had UltraEdit remove all the extra vertical and horizontal spacing, then wrapped the text so that everything would be visible. There wasn't much on the body of the page, just a form with no elements and no way to submit it. But, up in the head element... There it was, a redirect. I grabbed the URL and returned to Central Ops. There I found the address for the domain, San Francisco. So the next step was Google Maps, of course. The address is an area northeast of the Mission District, 1550 Bryant Street, 
keep that address in mind. You're going to see it again in just a minute. Sam Spade's turn again. Time for another redirect. Now, you'd be forgiven for thinking that we're going in circles here. The redirect of a redirect of a redirect. The next domain is registered to, ah, the same company at the same address. Now, I can think of a lot of reasons why somebody might do this. I have a little trouble thinking of one that is ethical. The next page is actually a legitimate HTML page with a form that allows the visitor to apply for a free college loan. So this is probably a business that offers to find scholarships for students. Guidance counselors generally recommend avoiding these operations because they charge a fee and because they often find nothing more than students could find on their own. It isn't illegal. It might not even be unethical. But I'd certainly want to keep my eye on my wallet while dealing with someone who has sent me on such a circuitous path just to get to the website. Well, I had some questions about the operation, so I asked Google, and the result was generally inconclusive. There was no shortage of sites that claimed that the operation is fraudulent, but none that I found was from a government agency or from the Better Business Bureau. In fact, I found some colleges that provided links to that company's website. And when I checked with the Better Business Bureau, I was surprised to find out that the company is a member of the BBB online. Checking further, I found the operation has only a few complaints filed against it. Of the four complaints filed against the company, two were resolved, two were not. That's a pretty good record. So the BBB's summary seems to indicate that the company is legitimate. One might question the justification that a legitimate business would use for sending spam or the justification for that long series of redirects. If I'm aware that a company deals with a spam-spewing organization, I will not deal with that company, and I'm not bashful about communicating my reasons to corporate leaders. There's a difference between commercial mail that I have invited into my inbox from companies I do business with and want to hear from, and that from people who have somehow managed to find one of my email addresses and use it to send offers for things I don't want or don't need. Well, as I said at the outset, finding redirects isn't particularly difficult, but it is time-consuming. Maybe it's a good activity if it's a rainy 4th of July and you're sitting at home wondering what to do. I mentioned that I use UltraEdit. So, when a message arrived that said, a new version of UltraEdit is available, I was interested. I downloaded it. I installed it. But the next time I started my favorite text editor, I was told that it was now unregistered and that I had 45 days to register it. A flurry of messages between me and IDM, the developer, revealed that what I considered a step upgrade from 14.0 to 14.1 was considered a major upgrade by them. That some 14.0 users were eligible for free upgrades, but I wasn't one of them and that IDM provides no-cost upgrades for one year regardless of version numbers. And they also said they were really sorry about the misunderstanding and hoped to find a better way to do things. Well, as annoying as that event was, I am still absolutely sold on UltraEdit. So much, in fact, that I paid for the upgrade without even bothering to look what's new in this version. That may be too trusting, that may be stupid, but I have a long history with UltraEdit, and I know that each version brings features I didn't know I needed, but I won't want to be without. Ben at IDM told me that 
Because point releases are still considered to be major releases based on the amount of development resources we commit, they are considered to be major releases just as much as version 14 was. Version 14.1 is as major a release as version 143.0. I think you got a decimal point in the wrong place there. And may consider each point release from IDM a stronger, stronger than the last. This is indeed a signature characteristic of IDM. It sounds like a fair amount of doublespeak to me. Now, I would suggest to IDM that the value to the client has no relationship to the amount of development resources that you commit to features and enhancements. Users don't particularly care what resources were committed. They do care about the new version and what it will do for them. I know that a small feature with minimal value to the user may consume an enormous amount of programming resources. If IDM chooses to commit those resources to minor features... That's really not the user's concern, and presenting it that way isn't a convincing argument. But Ben also said that he does understand my frustration, and they are evaluating options for making the updates and upgrades clearer for users. So that's good to know. Enhancements in version 14.1 really don't strike me as major release material, although they're certainly good and useful additions. For example, UltraEdit can perform find and replace in files. The new version allows the user to exclude file or folder names in the process. Previously, you could only select files and folders, so it's a minor upgrade. The user can find lines not matching a search string. Powerful feature, not one that most users will ever need. There's the ability to detect XHTML code and provide the appropriate code folding and indentation. This might be of use to me because I do use UltraEdit to examine HTML and XHTML created by other programs. A powerful feature, but again, probably not one that most users will need. The bookmark limit has been increased to 500. I have no idea what the limit was previously. I know that I've never encountered the limit. And on and on and on. Lots of nice additional features. Lots of nice tweaks not major upgrade material. So maybe the problem is that over the years, UltraEdit has become so competent and so refined and so powerful that there really isn't much more to do. There's not much profit margin in doing nothing. So IDM will continue to improve UltraEdit, but the improvements probably should be considered tweaks. But I said it's still my favorite, so this criticism doesn't mean that I'm going to be abandoning UltraEdit for some other program, or that I no longer like the developers. Indeed, I have a great deal of respect for them. What it means is that this time around, I finally bought the unlimited upgrades function. According to IDM, this means that I will never pay another upgrade fee. The price of the unlimited upgrade option is 150% of the retail price of the application. So I could have upgraded to the current version for about $30, or I could buy upgrades forever for $70. I wish every decision was that easy. In nerdly news, I knew something was amiss when Netflix acknowledged two of the three DVDs I had shipped back on the same day. Usually those confirmations arrive like clockwork early in the morning. Three we've received messages, followed in the afternoon by three we've shipped messages. The third received message never arrived, and there were no shipped messages. Then, a day later, Netflix said, We're sorry, DVD shipments are delayed. Our shipping system is unexpectedly down. We received a DVD back from you and should have shipped you a DVD, but we likely have not. 
Our goal is to ship DVDs as soon as possible, and we will keep you posted on the status of your DVD shipments. Three days later, Netflix was back. That is the longest disruption since Netflix began nine years ago. The company says subscribers will receive a 15% credit. That's going to add up to a lot because about a third of the company's 8.4 million subscribers were affected. Netflix says the credits will be automatically applied in the next billing cycle. And if you had just signed up for a two-week Netflix trial, you'll get an extra week. Netflix won't say what caused the outage, but they did admit that it affected all 55 of the company's shipping centers. Some discs went out on Wednesday and some went out on Thursday. Nothing went out on Tuesday. Just a few months ago, back in March, Netflix had a one-day outage, and the company was out of service for about 18 hours in 2007. Once again, though, the company got high marks from customers and from public relations professionals for making customers aware of a problem that those customers might not even have noticed, and for offering credits without being asked. Now, here's a law that should never need to exist. According to the New York Times, a city council member in New York City wants to ban sending and receiving text messages while driving. The common sense response to that would be to ask what kind of an idiot would try to send a text message while driving. But having noticed drivers with televisions on the dash and other drivers who are reading books or newspapers, I have to admit that New York City Councilman David Weprin is right. This week, Weprin introduced legislation that would ban sending or receiving of text messages while driving within New York City. The story in the New York Times quoted Weprin. He said it's a risk to drivers, obviously, and also to passengers and pedestrians. You're not looking at the road, and you don't have both hands on the wheel. Now, why should legislators have to point that out to us? Are we really that stupid? Unfortunately, it appears that some of us are. New York State and California both have bans on the use of cell phones when driving. California's law allows the use of cell phones, but requires that the motorist use a hands-free device. New York's law bans all cell phone use while driving. How bad is the problem? Five New York teens died last summer when the driver of the SUV they were riding in lost control of her car and struck a semi head-on. The driver was using her phone to send a text message when she died, along with four of her friends. New York's state legislature is considering a similar measure. Alaska, Minnesota, New Jersey, and Washington already banned text messaging while driving. A study by Nationwide Insurance in 2006 revealed that nearly 20% of drivers text message while at the wheel. Given the lunacy of doing that, this may explain several things about the United States of America these days. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of August 17th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.